Section 4 of Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World by Anonymous. Chapter 4 Woman in Savage Life. Man in a state of barbarity, equally cruel and indolent, active by necessity but naturally inclined to repose, is acquainted with little more than the physical effects of love, and having none of those moral ideas which only can soften the empire of force, he is led to consider it as his supreme law, subjecting to his despotism those whom reason has made his equals, but whose imbecility betrayed them to his strength. Cast in the lap of naked nature and exposed to every hardship, the forms of women in savage life are but little engaging. With nothing that deserves the name of culture, their latent qualities, if they have any, are like the diamond, while enclosed in the rough flint, incapable of showing any lustre. Thus destitute of everything by which they can excite love or acquire esteem, destitute of beauty to charm or art to soothe the tyrant man, they are by him destined to perform every mean and servile office. In this the American and other savage women differ widely from those of Asia, who, if they are destitute of the qualifications necessary for gaining esteem, have beauty, ornaments, and the art of exciting love. In civilized countries a woman acquires some power by being the mother of a numerous family, who obey her maternal authority and defends her honor and her life. But even as a mother, a female savage has not much advantage. Her children, daily accustomed to see their father treat her nearly as a slave, soon begin to imitate his example and either pay little regard to her authority or shake it off altogether. Of this the Hottentot boys afford a remarkable proof. They are brought up by the women till they are fourteen years of age. Then, with several ceremonies, they are initiated into the society of men. After this initiation is over, it is reckoned manly for a boy to take the earliest opportunity of returning to the hut of his mother and beating her in the most barbarous manner, to show that he is now out of her jurisdiction. Should the mother complain to the men, they would only applaud the boy for showing so laudable a contempt for the society and authority of women. In the Brazils the females are obliged to follow their husbands to war to supply the place of beasts of burden, and to carry on their backs their children, provisions, hammocks, and everything wanted in the field. In the Isthmus of Darien they are sent along with the warriors and travellers as we do baggage-horses. Even their queen appeared before some English gentlemen carrying her sucking-child wrapped in a red blanket. The women among the Indians of America are what the Helots were among the Spartans a vanquished people obliged to toil for their conquerors. Hence, on the banks of the Orinoco, we have heard of mothers slaying their daughters out of compassion and smothering them in the hour of their birth. They consider this barbarous pity as a virtue. Father Joseph Gumilla, reproving one of them for this inhuman crime, received the following answer. I wish to God, Father, I wish to God that my mother had, by my death, prevented the manifold distresses I have endured, and have yet to endure as long as I live. Had she kindly stilled me in my birth, I should not have felt the pain of death, nor the numberless other pains to which life has subjected me. Consider, Father, our deplorable condition. 
Our husbands go to hunt with their bows and arrows and trouble themselves no farther. We are dragged along with one infant at our breast and another in a basket. They return in the evening without any burden. We return with the burden of our children. Though tired with long walking, we are not allowed to sleep, but must labor the whole night in grinding maize to make chica for them. They get drunk, and in their drunkenness beat us, draw us by the hair of the head, and tread us underfoot. A young wife is brought upon us and permitted to abuse us and our children. What kindness can we show to our female children, equal to that of relieving them from such servitude, more bitter a thousand times than death? I repeat again, would to God my mother had put me underground the moment I was born. The men, says Commodore Byron, in his account of the inhabitants of South America, exercise a most despotic authority over their wives, whom they consider in the same view they do any other part of their property, and dispose of them accordingly. Even their common treatment of them is cruel. For though the toil and hazard of procuring food lies entirely on the women, yet they are not suffered to touch any part of it until the husband is satisfied, and then he assigns them their portion, which is generally very scanty, and such as he has not a stomach for himself. The Greenlanders, who live mostly upon seals, think it sufficient to catch and bring them on shore, and would rather submit to starve than assist their women in skinning, dressing, or dragging home the cumbrous animals to their huts. In some parts of America, when the men kill any game in the woods, they lay it at the root of a tree, fix a mark there, and, travelling until they arrive at their habitation, send their woman to fetch it, a task which their own laziness and pride equally forbid. Among many of the tribes of wandering Arabs, the women are not only obliged to do every domestic and every rural work, but also to feed, to dress, and saddle the horses for the use of their husbands. The Moorish women, besides doing all the same kinds of drudgery, are also obliged to cultivate the fields, while their husbands stand idle spectators of the toil, or sleep inglorious beneath a neighboring shade. In Madura the husband generally speaks to his wife in the most imperious tone, while she, with fear and trembling, approaches him, waits upon him while at meals, and pronounces not his name, but with the addition of every dignifying title she can devise. In return for all this submission he frequently beats and abuses her in the most barbarous manner. Being asked the reason of such a behavior, one of them answered, As our wives are so much our inferiors, why should we allow them to eat and drink with us? Why should they not serve us with whatever we call for, and afterwards sit down and eat up what we leave? If they commit faults, why should they not suffer correction? It is their business only to bring up our children, pound our rice, make our oil, and do every other kind of drudgery, purposes to which only their low and inferior natures are adapted. The Circassian custom of breeding young girls, on purpose to be sold in the public market to the highest bidder, is generally known. Perhaps, however, upon minute examination, we shall find that women are, in some degree, bought and sold in every country, whether savage or civilized. EASTERN WOMEN The women of the East have, in general, always exhibited the same appearance. Their manners, customs, and fashions, unalterable like their rocks, have stood the test of many revolving ages. Though the kingdoms of their country have often changed masters, though they have submitted to the arms of almost every invader, yet the laws by which their sex are governed and enslaved have never been revised nor amended. Had the manners and customs of the Asiatic women been subject to the same changes as they are in Europe, 
we might have expected the same changes in the sentiments and writings of their men. But as this is not the case, we have reason to presume that the sentiments entertained by Solomon, by the apocryphal writers, and by the ancient Brahmins are the sentiments of this day. Though the confinement of women be an unlawful exertion of superior power, yet it affords a proof that the inhabitants of the East are advanced some degrees farther in civilization than mere savages, who have hardly any love, and consequently as little jealousy. This confinement is not very rigid in the empire of the Mughal. It is perhaps less so in China, and in Japan hardly exists. Though women are confined in the Turkish empire, they experience every other indulgence. They are allowed at stated times to go to the public baths. Their apartments are richly, if not elegantly, furnished. They have a train of female slaves to serve and amuse them, and their persons are adorned with every costly ornament which their fathers or husbands can afford. Notwithstanding the strictness of confinement in Persia, their women are treated with several indulgences. They are allowed a variety of precious liquors, costly perfumes, and beautiful slaves. Their apartments are furnished with the most elegant hangings and carpets. Their persons ornamented with the finest silks, and even loaded with the sparkling jewels of the East. But all these trappings, however elegant, or however gilded, are only like the golden chains sometimes made use of to bind a royal prisoner. Solomon had a great number of queens and concubines, but a petty Hindu chief has been known to have two thousand women confined within the walls of his harem, and appropriated entirely to his pleasure. Nothing less than unlimited power in the husband is able to restrain women so confined from the utmost disorder and confusion. They may repine in secret, but they must clothe their features with cheerfulness when their lord appears. Contumacy draws down on them immediate punishment. They are degraded, chastised, divorced, shut up in dark dungeons, and sometimes put to death. Their persons, however, are so sacred that they must not in the least be violated, nor even be looked at by any one but their husbands. This female privilege has given an opportunity of executing many conspiracies. Warriors, in such vehicles as are usually employed to carry women, have been often conveyed without examination into the apartments of the great, from whence, instead of issuing forth in the smiles of beauty, they have rushed out in the terror of arms and laid the tyrants at their feet. No stranger is ever allowed to see the women of Hindustan, nor can even brothers visit their sisters in private. To be conscious of the existence of a man's wives seems a crime, and he looks surly and offended if their health is inquired after. In every country honor exists in something upon which the possessor sets the highest value. This with the Hindu, is the chastity of his wives, a point without which he must not live. In the midst of slaughter and devastation throughout all the East, the harem is a sanctuary. Ruffians covered with the blood of a husband shrink back with veneration from the secret apartment of his wives. At Constantinople, when the Sultan sends an order to strangle a state criminal and seize on his effects, the officers who execute it enter not into the harem nor touch anything belonging to the women. Every Turkish seraglio and harem has a garden adjoining to it, and in the middle of this garden a large room, more or less decorated according to the wealth of the proprietor. Here the ladies spend most of their time with their attendant nymphs around them, employed at their music, embroidery, or loom. It has long been a custom among the grandees of Asia to entertain storytellers of both sexes, who, like the bards of ancient Europe, divert them with tales and little histories 
mostly on the subject of bravery and love. These often amuse the women and beguile the cheerless hours of the harem by calling up images to their minds which their eyes are forever debarred from seeing. All their other amusements, as well as this, are indolently voluptuous. They spend a great part of their time in lolling on silken sofas, while a train of female slaves, scarcely less voluptuous, attend to sing to them, to fan them, and to rub their bodies, an exercise which the Easterns enjoy with a sort of placid ecstasy, as it promotes the circulation of their languid blood. They bathe themselves in rose-water and other baths, prepared with the precious odors of the East. They perfume themselves with costly essences, and adorn their persons, that they may please the tyrant with whom they are obliged to live. End of section 4